if you have a copy of God's Word available to you this morning, we might ask you to join me in the book of Hebrews at the 8th chapter, Hebrews 8, and I made a mistake in a transcription. It should actually begin at verse 1, not verse 6, and so it'll be the entire 8th chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you have everything according, excuse me, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, this is a quote from Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, by the way, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Help us that we would rightly see and hear and understand and apply this, your word. May we rejoice in the gift you have granted us in this new covenant. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Bear in mind, as we work through this text this morning, the relationship between the Mosaic law, the Christian, 
the place of Israel and Christian ethics, all of those have been issues of discussion and disagreement for hundreds of years. This is not a discussion that demarcates the difference between Christian and non-Christian. Rather, it's how we interpret certain parts of Scripture. What is the relationship of the law and the Christian? Moses to Christ, the old covenant, the new. How are believers supposed to live in this world? We read this lengthy text in Hebrews that cites the promise of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31. But I have you listen to a few other texts. I won't ask you to turn there. There are several of them back to back. So just listen closely. Mark 14, 24, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Parallel text, Luke 22, Likewise, after the cup they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25, Paul citing the same event, Last Supper. In the same way also, after he took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 2 Corinthians, third chapter. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Hebrews 9, 15th verse, you have come to Mount, excuse me, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then Hebrews 12, what we did in the responsive reading, tells us where we have come to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. A sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It appears just in those readings that the concept of the new covenant is kind of a big deal. Otherwise, it wouldn't be spoken of as regularly and frequently as it is. A new covenant. Now, covenant in and of itself anchored in a Hebraic idea, in fact, it was an idea of the ancient Near East, the idea of covenant was the idea of a relationship established. Many of these were based on what scholars call suzerainty treaties. Now, that's a mouthful simply to say that a conquering king would enter into a relationship with a conquered people. And in that relationship, they'd have a document, not a contract, but a covenant. And a covenant had in it a preamble, an opening statement, promises of what the king agreed to do, promises of what the people agreed to do, consequences if you didn't do it, and then a conclusion. And almost every one of them was established, connected to a blood offering, a 
bloodletting that sealed the covenant. If you think about it, the covenants of the Old Testament, all, virtually all, have some element of this in them. Now, what are we speaking of when we speak of the new covenant? And why does it matter? I will say on a practical side, over the years in pastoral counseling of ministry to people, I find that unbelievers and believers alike seem to lose sight of the new covenant. And they spend way too much time and energy on themselves and what they're doing or not doing versus what God has done and promised to do. How can I please God? How can God ever forgive me? I've messed up again. Why should God receive me? The Lord must be more tired of my failures than I am. What if I keep failing? I keep trying, but I'm so tired. All of this, I believe, has roots in misunderstanding the realities of the new covenant. In fact, this is of such importance, we believe a separate article in our confession of faith is needed. The new covenant. We believe that the new covenant has been established through the redemptive work of Christ, the blessings of which are only received by grace through faith, and that Christ has fulfilled the old covenant, thereby making it obsolete. God's final words of revelation given through Christ and his New Testament apostles and prophets are the interpretive lens through which the Old Testament must be understood and applied. This understanding of the new covenant gives us a better way of viewing salvation, the church, and Christian ethics. I will not go into the formalities of how this all fits together. Some of you are theological nerds and you'd be glad for me to articulate the distinctions between theonomy and covenant theology, and progressive covenantalism, and new covenant theology, and progressive dispensationalism, and classical dispensationalism, and some of you just fell asleep. If you want to have that discussion another time, we'll do it. But for now, let's look at the text. You see, my friend, when we don't understand the relationship of the old and new covenants, we really, I don't believe we really understand Christ. We don't understand what he did, we don't understand what he accomplished, and we don't understand what belongs to us in him. The greatness of Christ's priesthood reflects the greatness of the new covenant. Now remember, the author of the book of Hebrews, whose name we do not know, all sorts of guesswork out there, some will claim very readily it was the apostle Paul, don't think so, doesn't read Pauline to me. Uh, others have claimed that it might have been um, Aquila or even Priscilla. Some have claimed Apollos because of the level of the beautiful Greek that is used here. And Apollos was a very intelligent, articulate fellow. And here's what I'll tell you. I'll quote one of the old church fathers who said, who wrote this epistle, only God knows. And I can camp there and be content. It reads kind of like a homily or a sermon from that era. 
And it could very well be that this was a message preached that was later transcribed and sent out. The point of it was this. There were Jewish Christians who were having a struggle about faithfulness. It was hard to be faithful, partly because they lost so much when they became Christians. Many times, their families would actually hold a funeral for them if they'd come to faith and confess Jesus as Savior. And since business and livelihood was almost always tied to the family, many times they lost everything. And it was all kind of weird. I mean, you're supposed to go up to temple and offer sacrifices, and now Jesus has come, and there's no more need for sacrifices. And he even said that temple was going to be destroyed within a generation. And besides all that, these Gentiles that we used to consider dogs are now brothers, sisters, part of the family. And when we have our covered dish dinners at First Baptist Church, they've been known to bring ham and shrimp. Some of them even want to have a fish fry featuring catfish. And no Jew could do that. And there's this conflict, and you're losing so much, and they're thinking about going back into Judaism. It's familiar. It's comfortable. And they'd be welcomed back with open arms. And the author of Hebrews is warning them that that path leads to destruction. And if you're trying to figure out how Jesus fixes all of this and fits it in, this is the point, if you will, of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the law. He's better than all those things. He is the fulfillment of those things. So consider this first. <clears throat> the superiority of Christ's priesthood. The first five verses. The point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. And he's referencing back to the end of the seventh chapter. Verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's the kind of high priest you have in Jesus, superior in character. In fact, it says of him, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Folks, we have a priesthood. Every single believer under the terms of the new covenant is a priest. Every last one of you, you're a priest. And we've got one high priest. And that high priest isn't at a geographical location in the city of Jerusalem, that high priest is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. In fact, the author of Hebrews later will make a big point about the fact 
that that priest, Jesus, did something that no other priest ever did in all of his service in the tabernacle. If you look at all the furnishings in the tabernacle and the temple, there's altars, there's tables, there's lampstands, there's the Ark of the Covenant. One piece of furniture missing. There's not a chair to be found because the priests, the Levites, never stopped doing their job. It was an unending activity of sacrifice through confession, atonement, bloodletting, and fire. Sin, confession, atonement, bloodletting, fire. Rivers of water. This priest sits down. Thomas Schreiner put it this way, Jesus is the reigning and ruling priest king and exercises authority as the messianic king. The words majesty in the heavens in verse 1 points to God's awesomeness and his transcendence. Since Jesus sits at the right hand of the one who is so great, he also exercises transcendent power. This Jesus is seated because the sacrificial work is done. This priest is a glorious and greater priest, superior in character. The true tent isn't meaning there's a literal tent in heaven. The language is by analogy. The true tabernacle is the presence of God, the place where God reigns and rules. He offers a superior offering. Verses 3 and 4 speak of this high priest appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. It was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he'd not be a priest at all. Why would Jesus not be a priest on earth? Because he was from the wrong tribe. He was not a descendant of Aaron. He wasn't part of the tribe of Levi. He was a descendant of the tribe of Judah. He could not be a priest under the terms of the Old Covenant. And yet, he brings a sacrifice. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, if you want to dig a little further, if you look at chapters 9 and 10, what you'll find is that Christ's work of atonement, the offering aspect, is worked out in chapters 9 and 10. He's also superior in location. Our high priest serves in the reality to which the Mosaic priests and offerings pointed. They're still offering sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem at the time this is written. Jesus is in glory. My friends, here is the picture. Why would the readers consider trading away what Jesus had done for them? As if a ministry and tabernacle on earth could be better than a ministry and tabernacle in heaven. There is no comparison here what this was the symbol of jesus is the glory of in heaven the sacrificial system the tabernacle all of it types as gary pointed out pictures i've used this illustration before when laura and i met she lived here and i lived in ponca city oklahoma there's a few miles between springfield 
and Park City. It can be traversed if you're a little fluid with your interpretation of speed limits. In a nominal four hours, give or take. Probably shouldn't say more than that about speed. I love the fact that I had pictures of Lord. Now, folks, some of you are young. You don't understand this. We didn't have smartphones. We had dumb phones. Okay? And they were anchored to walls or were on tables. There was no screen. Some of them didn't even have push buttons. They had a rotary. I know it was primitive days. It was a hard life. <laughs> Folks often burned innumerable calories dialing phones. It was, it was a sad day. It was also hard to have privacy because unless you had a long extension cord or you picked up the extension in another room, you had to have your conversation in front of people. So what I'm saying is we talked on the phone. My phone bill went up dramatically. But I had pictures, and I was delighted to have those pictures. But my friend, once we had the wedding, the pictures no longer had the primacy in my home. She's there. It's as silly to go back to the old covenant as it would be for a husband to look at his wife and say, honey, you're great, you're marvelous, but I really love this picture. The picture represents not, it is not the reality. Now, it's not just the superiority of Christ's priesthood. From verses 6 to 13, it's the superiority of Christ's covenant. Verse 6, if you will, is the key verse here. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. His ministry is more excellent because the covenant he mediates is better. The emphasis here is twofold. The inadequacy and obsolescence of the Mosaic covenant the superiority and unending future of the new covenant. The new covenant is superior first because of its promises. He says in verse 6, it's based on better promises. Now, just in case you're wondering what those are, he cites the new covenant promise from Jeremiah 31. So what's the superiority? What are the promises? Well, the first one, verse 10, the law is internalized. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Here is the first superiority. The laws he puts in the minds and hearts of believers are not merely a repetition of the Mosaic laws, but rather they are laws that are reflective of the new covenant. New laws for a new covenant. After all, the high priest of the new covenant 
is not selected according to the Mosaic Covenant, but based on the promises of the new one. They're connected to his lordship as lawgiver as well as high priest. Now, folks, this is such a glorious reality. A change takes place in us. When you come to faith in Christ, a heart surgery happens. An absolute transplant. I was reading one occasion, Christian Barnard, the first surgeon to ever do a heart transplant, impulsively asked one of his patients, Dr. Philip Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? At 8 p.m. on the subsequent evening, the men stood in a room of the Groot Schur Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. Dr. Bernard went up to a cupboard, took down a glass container, and handed it to Dr. Blayberg. Inside the container was Blayberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there in stunned silence. The first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Can you ponder that for a moment? Holding your own heart. Finally, he spoke, and for 10 minutes, he plied this surgeon with technical questions. He turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container and said, so that's the old heart that caused me so much trouble. He handed it back, turned away left it there in the jar, never came back. Christian, the new covenant, Christ by his spirit, takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. He changes you. The text of Scripture in the book of Ephesians will talk about minds that are darkened and hearts that are hardened and wills that are bound. When the gospel comes in the power of the Spirit, the mind is enlightened. (laughs) The heart is transformed. The will The great promise of the new covenant is this. Everybody who's truly a new covenant member will never fall away. All members of the covenant community are regenerate. You could be a member of the old covenant and not be converted. All you had to do to be a member of the old covenant community was to have fulfilled the obligations outwardly of the law and you were counted among the covenant community. My friend, you don't get to be a part of this community of faith unless you give profession that you have been saved by the grace of God. You have repented of your sins and believed in Christ. This places you in that new covenant community. The law is internalized. Now think about that for a moment. Have you noticed one of the major distinctions between the ethical instruction in the New Testament and much of the instruction out of the law in the Old Testament is very dissimilar. 
in this way. You look at the Old Testament law, and you'll have these case law applications that give you very specific things. In the case of this, do this or this, but if you do this, there's a problem, and here's the sacrifice for that, etc., etc., etc. The New Testament doesn't have that. In fact, the New Testament comes at us more with principles than specific applications. I'm not saying it doesn't make applications. There's been a change. Inwardly, Christian, you have been changed. And so when the Word of God speaks to you, when Christ declares to you, when the apostles write this to you, there is an echo of response in your own heart. You have been changed. You want to do what the Lord calls you to do. My friend, if you don't want to, then you need to wonder whether or not you've ever been converted. If you have no longing for change, no longing for obedience, then I question whether the new covenant has been effective. Further, not only is the relationship, or excuse me, the law internalized, the relationship, I made this one up, is eternalized. We will never be lost. And we are living for a day. Here is Paul put it in Philippians 3rd chapter. That I may know him and the power what? of his resurrection. That I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We live this, my friend, because the new covenant's final fulfillment <laughs> is with this body of flesh shall one day be transformed. And I will no longer sin because I won't be able to. Hallelujah. I, I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day I can't anymore. It's an eternalized relationship. Finally, it is a solution realized through his death. This goes back to those words we read earlier, the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant poured out for many. This cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. My sins are atoned for. Christian, your sins, past, present, future, are atoned for. You are not going to atone for a single sin. You cannot you don't have the capacity, nor is there the necessity. Your sin is forgiven in Him. Well, I messed up again. The cross is bigger than that. I keep failing. The cross is bigger than that. But I did this. The cross is bigger than that. What if the cross is bigger than than your what if. So what's become of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant? Well, what's it say in verse 13? In speaking of the new, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to be what? Vanish away. The Old Covenant was inadequate 
Now, please understand, folks, I'm not, don't, don't walk out and say, well, pastor doesn't think the Old Testament's the Word of God. I didn't say that. The Old Testament is the Word of God, and it is still the Word of God to us. But it is not the covenant under which we live. I still gain important information and encouragement in my soul from the Old Testament. My friend, never read the 119th Psalm about loving the law of God and thinking, that doesn't apply to me. Of course it does. We should love what the Lord has spoken. We should love His commandments, right? They're not grievous. We love these things. But I am so gloriously thankful that I live under the terms of the new rather than the old. There is peace for sinners. The old could only command, it could not enable. Because of our sin, the Mosaic Covenant can never fulfill its purpose At the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, it was being replaced by the new covenant. He tells us it's ready to vanish away. The old covenant is passing away. It is no longer a means of relating to God. Nobody, hear what I'm saying, nobody has a relationship with God or will ever have a relationship with God that is based in the Mosaic Covenant. That simply cannot happen since Christ has come. You understand, my friend, this is part of what helps define us as being Baptists. Not all Baptists recognize it this way. But the fact is, we don't land typically many of us. Some do. Please understand, I'm not, not painting broad brush here. I'm just saying. The terms of the Old Covenant included circumcision, and some want to make a connection between circumcision and baptism. And just as the child was circumcised in infancy, all children ought to be baptized. We understand in covenant theology to make them part of the covenant community, but they're part of the covenant community based on the faith of their parents, and they have not yet themselves exercised saving faith. Now, it's a leak package. I tell you, in my 20s, my late 20s, I did my best to become a Presbyterian. It would have been easier. I thought, man, I I like it, and I love the system. But the more I read the text, the less I could be. I didn't know what to do with baptism. I I was going to have to junk everything I believed the text said about baptism. My friend, the terms are this. Under the old covenant, simply by being born to an Israelite parent, fulfilling the terms, you were made a part of the covenant community. The fact is, my children didn't become Christians the minute they were born, and they weren't part of the covenant community. The only way that happens is by your own personal faith in Christ, and that is why we are not pedo-baptists, but credo-baptists. I believe Therefore, I can be baptized. And this demarcates a serious difference in our understanding of church membership. And that's just one part. Let me give you a couple of other applications. I know some of you are wondering, so what, how, what does this matter? All right, let's think about it this way. 
some try to drive a, 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 an idea of an ethic out of the old covenant in this way, that the law of Moses had three aspects. There was ceremonial law, civil law, moral law. Ceremonial, the sacrifices. Civil, how you operate in a society. And moral, the Ten Commandments. That three-part distinction you really can't find before the theologian Thomas Aquinas. Now, some think you might find it as early as Tertullian, but I'm not sure that you can find it there. But it's an interesting way to divide up the Old Testament law. But herein lies the problem. You cannot find that distinction anywhere in the text. Everything was expected to be obeyed, right? All of it. Every single aspect of it. Now, some say, well, aren't you, you're going to become an antinomian. Now, that's a fancy way of saying lawless. No. What Christ commands, what his apostles command, is obligatory upon us. We don't make this stuff up. We don't make up the ethic. The Scripture guides us, tells us how we should live. But keep these things in mind. John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep what? My commandments. And in chapter 13 of John, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, just in case you wonder how that looks, he defines it for you. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, here's a straight-up commandment. And he even calls it a new one. Notice what he says. You're to love one another the way I've loved you. He doesn't say, love one another the way that you want to be loved. Do your neighbor as yourself. Not at all. He says, love one another the way I have loved you. Folks, do you understand what a key pivot point that is to understanding ethics? Unless you wonder if I'm making this stuff out of whole cloth, let me give you a couple of applications. In 2 Corinthians, Paul will write to the Corinthian church about an offering for the Jewish believers who are struggling because of a famine. You remember this? Chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And he'll tell them about the Macedonians. Now, if you're wondering who the Macedonians are, that's where Philippi is lo located. All right? Now, here's what he said. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, now listen to these words, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Now, that's an interesting combination, isn't it? Abundance of joy and extreme poverty. I don't know about you, but I never think about extreme poverty and joy in the same sentence. Have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. Now what means are those? What did he say? Extreme poverty. Right? As I can testify. And what did he say? Beyond their means of their own accord. Now folks, in case you're not following this, 
if you don't have much to start with, extreme poverty, then anything you give hurts. That makes sense? If you're extremely poor, anything you give away is painful. But they not only gave out of their means what might seem possible to do even for somebody poor, they gave beyond their means. Can I slip a little word in there? Sacrificially. Mm. And he ends it at verse 7. He says to the Corinthians, As you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as command, but prove by the earnestness of others that you love your love also is genuine. What did he say? He didn't set a percentage. He didn't say give this much. He tells them, set aside what you've determined in your heart, but listen to this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that, by, that, so that you, by his poverty, might become What was the standard for giving? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh, you want another one? Well, you want it or not, I'm going to give it. I can't get over the number of folks that want to camp on Ephesians chapter 5 anymore about women. And the, the argument, it seems to always fall on women, submit to your husbands as the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as the Lord. Now, folks, it's in the text. It's there. It's clear. It ought to be obeyed. No argument. Why is it that this doesn't get as much play? Husbands, love your wives. Absent a list. Paul doesn't say, now here's the way you do it. Boom, 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 check, 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 check. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. My brothers, let me say this just as blunt as I can tell you, all right? She won't have near as much trouble with her part if you're doing this. And whether she does her part or not, you don't have an option. Well, I don't want to get over it. It's costly. Yep. What's your question? Do you see the target here? There are other texts that give us this. My friend, pay attention here. The new covenant is such a glorious thing that we are offered here. Let me conclude this way. Now, some of you think, boy, you've been all over the Bible today because it's everywhere. But I want you to get a feel for this. I want you to have the flavor of it because there's something else that stands out and I cannot leave without this. I go to Isaiah, the sixth chapter, and I see a man shattered. He's lost his king, Uzziah, king for years, decades. 
like Isaiah doesn't know what to do. And he's at the temple, and he's suddenly caught up in a vision. And in that vision, he sees the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, right? Now, let me give you another one. Let's move forward a nominal 750, 800 years. Another man, John, <laughs> looks like he's in the same place. He sees God on his throne, Revelation chapter 4, and he's reigning from this glorious throne, and the, the living creatures are around the throne, the seraphim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I start making a comparison between the two visions. And in the first vision, the man is shattered. And the great shattering is he knows he's a prophet for God and he realizes the uncleanness of the instrument of his speaking. And a coal from the altar is taken. It's not that the coal was purifying. It's the symbol of the altar, the sacrifice. And that hot coal is laid upon his lips. And I cringe every time I think about that. Because your sin is purged. And I go with the message. And folks, do you understand what the message was? Be ever listening and never hearing. Be ever seeing and not perceiving. Judgment is falling on you, Israel. Judah, you're doomed. But when I go to the book of Revelation, there's something else happening. A lamb appears. Somebody asked the question. He who sits on the throne has this scroll, and the scroll is sealed. And somebody says, who's worthy to open the scroll? And John hears that there's nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth who's worthy to open the scroll, and he weeps because there's no one worthy. And he doesn't think he's going to find out anything until one of the elders said, wait a minute, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And when he looks, what he sees isn't a lion, but a lamb. And the lamb takes the and when it does, all of heaven breaks out into song. Worthy is the Lamb. And it's not just heaven. It's the entirety of redeemed creation. Listen to the words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. 
Never miss the distinction between the vision of Isaiah and the vision of John. And the difference is the Lamb. We're not worthy to come before God. He is. We're not worthy to see God's plan, but He is. We would have no place around the throne but for Him. Here is the glory of the new covenant, my friends. We have a great high priest, the eternal sacrifice. We have he who is God in the flesh, our man in heaven, seated at the right hand of glory, interceding for us. And we are saved and kept and shall be transformed for all eternity because of him. This is the joy of the new covenant.